0: Come Holy Spirit, enlighten our hearts and our minds, comfort us, reveal the Father to us, and please give us listening hearts to hear what you're saying to each one of us today or this evening. Amen. Amen. All right, this talk is called Freedom in Christ. Freedom. Freedom, 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 freedom. Freedom is what every person strives for and every person desires in their life Catholic, Christian, non Catholic, Buddhist, whatever a person is. They want freedom. There's the physical freedom of being able to be free, to say what you want, to speak, to do what you want to do, and all those kind of things which we have enjoyed in our country and still do so relatively, right? But the freedom that God offers us is a freedom of the heart, a freedom of the mind, a freedom just to be I remember several years ago, probably, oh, I'd say 2009, 10, somewhere around there. A friend of mine asked me, wouldn't it be nice just to be able to sit at home in the silence without any TV, any music, anything going and just be at peace? And I remember thinking that would be amazing. Cause the minute I shut down the noise, the minute I shut down anything, it was like, right? Silent retreats would have driven me absolutely nuts because silence amplifies whatever's happening in your heart. Whatever's happening interiorly, silence makes it louder. That's why we always keep noise on and sound and all these other distractions, Because our entire culture is geared towards distracting us from what's actually happening in our hearts. Because it's in the depth of the heart that the human person actually dwells. That's where God dwells in the depth of our heart. The catechism in the fourth pillar says that the heart is the place of choice. It's the place where we choose. It's beyond the psychic drives It even says beyond the psychic drive, so beyond our thinking, beyond our feeling, beyond that stuff is where God actually dwells with us. Our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, all those psychological sort of things are the doorway through which he either enters in or we keep him out. Right? What happens in a prayer session, hopefully, is that a person actually opens up all of those things. In prayer, we should open up our thoughts, feelings, and desires. Right? We should open these things up. We should be honest about them. We should have humility and speak the truth of what they are. When I stated before what I did with my wife, what I did was I opened that and created a space for grace to come in. What freedom is, in the end, is the ability to stay in that place of openness and vulnerability. It's the ability to stay open. It's the ability to be honest and open with what we think, what we feel, what we desire to be true in our actions. And in the end, that's how we come to know the love of God, is by opening up. Jesus stays open and vulnerable all the time. That's what that is a symbol of. See, most of us think that's absolutely terrifying, to stay open and vulnerable all the time. Right? Even standing here like this is just slightly awkward. You know, I'm not trying to stand like him, but just even standing here open like this is slightly awkward because it opens me up. Right? But that's the very place that we stay, it's the way of relationship. Everything in the Catholic faith is meant to lead us to deeper intimacy in relationship. Some people are very simple-minded, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Everybody's different as far as their intellectual capacity, their physical capacities, all these kind of things. None of us are the same on that. For those who are more simple-minded, the intellectual tradition of the church may not be a great source of intimacy. For those who are deeply intelligent, it will be an immense source of intimacy. But everything in the faith is meant to lead us to the place of intimacy, to the place of relationship, to the place of communion. And that is freedom. Freedom is when we can stand naked without our fig leaves before the other and be who we are without apology. Without forcing it, without assaulting people with who we are, without hiding, that's what freedom is. It's to be with the other. It's to be able to have another person stand before us that's so obnoxiously different from us that we don't get all freaked out and insecure and weird. Oh God, there's the tattooed guy. It happens. My experience in the church is I kind of draw a line right down the middle. You got the people who tolerate that I'm here and you got the people who are like, oh, finally, there's something different. And then the other people in the middle, right? Can we be secure in who we are? That's what freedom really is. It's not that we will never feel pain. That's a modern notion in our culture. That we're not going to feel pain. We're not going to hurt. We're not going to have feelings that are unsettling at times or things that stir us in a negative way. That will always happen because we live in a fallen, broken world. And people are sinful. And people are empty cups. And they are not Jesus all the time. Right? But what freedom is, is that I can stay open even if you are not. Even if you're not okay, I can be okay. Because I don't need you to be okay. Wouldn't that be great to be free of you and your spouse and your kids and me and father and everybody else? And be totally dependent upon our Lord, that's the great gift of freedom. When we enter into this communion with our Lord in total openness and total intimacy, we get washed clean by faith. Paul says, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. What's the glory, his manifestation, and his presence? The glory cloud in the Old Testament that hovered over the tabernacle, it's his presence. We have total access and peace with Him. Once we're baptized, we're washed clean. When we go to confession and we have no mortal sin on our soul, clean. And then the peak, when we go to communion and we actually partake of this sacrifice that cleanses us, we're clean. Romans 5, 1 to 2. 5 and 6 are really good chapters, I would read. But this is something we get by faith. Do we believe it? Do we believe what the church teaches? That God is love, that at baptism we're washed clean... That when we go to confession and we confess everything that's there, knowingly confess everything that we know of that's there, that we're clean. When we receive communion, we're clean. Do we believe it? This is the core of everything. What do you believe? This is why we profess our faith, the creed, every Sunday. I believe in. It's all about what we believe. Do we believe it? What do you believe when you had a prayer session? Did you feel that space? Did you feel that lightness? Do you believe that that's what happened or a 24 hours, 48, 72 hours a week later when the evil one starts chirping and says, yeah, that was all, that was nothing. That was you. You made it up. What do you believe? The entire message of Paul could be boiled down to one simple thing. Grace comes through faith. It's not what we do. It's what we believe. Do we believe that we're justified by faith in him and we have peace with God, the Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ? That's what the church teaches us. That's what the scriptures teach us that's what hopefully we encountered in our prayer session was a sense of peace communion that's where freedom lies when we believe that we will start to change paul also says be renewed by the transforming of your mind mind is a broader concept than just the intellect it's our thoughts feelings desires all those things Be renewed in those. So if I've been washed clean, do I need to be upset about what happened before? Do I need to continue allowing the memory of my former sins to harangue me? That's not us. It's the evil one chirping. God wants us to stand in this place of freedom. The evil one wants us to move. What St. Ignatius of Loyola tells us in the discernment of spirits is that for the person who is moving from grace to grace to grace to grace, right? In other words, we're seeking after God. We're moving towards God. We're trying to grow in holiness. We're participating in the sacraments of the church. We're trying to be good, holy disciples is that God's action is always peace, joy, love, patience, kindness, tenderness, consolation. The only negative feeling thing that God will give us when we're moving in that direction ardently is sorrow for our sin. When we sin, we will feel bad about it. What that means is when we feel sorrow for that sin, we're led to repent. We're led to say we're sorry. We're led to try to come back to our Lord and ask forgiveness. That's what that sorrow for sin leads to. All the other negative stuff for that person who's moving towards God ardently is of the evil one, period. Questioning, doubt, fear, insecurity... Scruples, constantly worrying, anxiety, distress, depression, guilt, shame, condemnation. All of that stuff is from the evil one. The question is, is can we stand in this place of communion with him, washed clean and reject those things? That's the real question. Do I believe that God loves me? Do I believe in my identity as a son or a daughter in the heart of the Father? Jesus does not give us a choice to stand in the middle. There's a Protestant pastor who told a story. He had a dream one night. And he was sitting on a fence. And on one side of the fence was God... And his kingdom on the other side of the fence was the evil one. And he's sitting on the fence and he sees the devil coming towards him laughing. And he's like, What are you laughing about? Right? And he's like, You chose me. He's like, No, I haven't. I'm sitting on a fence. He's like, I own the fence. Satan owns the fence the prophetic the prophet god's prophetic word the prophet never leaves a space that's gray jesus never gives us an option to sit in the middle look throughout the gospels whenever he talks he always makes them choose <laughs> this or that which one what are you doing ding 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 there is no middle ground We're either for him or against him. We either love or we don't. We either seek after ourselves or we seek the well-being of others. It's always an either-or thing. This is difficult, very difficult, and our culture does not like any of it. I don't like it. Because what it means is I have to become obedient. That's what happens with that. Black or white means obedient or not. Do I trust and believe he's my father who looks upon me with love and has my absolute best interests at in heart and in mind every moment of every day, or do I not? There's no room to wiggle there. So freedom is this Communion. Freedom is knowing that we are loved. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. He said, You're worth my life. We need to come to know this identity as a child of God and know that God is always present. We're always in his presence. There are no secret times. (laughs) There are times when my wife's not watching me. There's times when my boss isn't watching me. My pastor's not watching me. My spiritual director's not watching me. And any other person is not watching me. I have times alone from you all. There is never one second alone from him. He watches and he sees everything. Now, for some of us, that can stir a lot of fear, like, big brother's watching me. He's there. That's one way to look at it, I suppose. That would be Satan's way to look at it. Because he's not a tyrant. He's not hovering to catch us in our misdeeds and smack us around. It's actually the other This person, this Father who loves us so much is always present. We always have access to Him. He's always there. He's always looking upon us with love. See, we as humans, particularly as fallen ones, we tend to see all the garbage in a person that we come across. Right? We see all the negative stuff. This is the eternal struggle I've noticed in marriage. Does she have to do that? Seriously? Come on, Demetra. Does he have to do that? Really? You're so irritating. Right? My wife had brain surgery in May. She's overwhelmed. We have four little kids, seven, five, two, and then the other one will be one on Wednesday, the youngest. We moved in the last month. We had job changes. She quit her work. I switched my job. Like, we had pretty much every life experience you can have in the last 12, 14, 16 months. Right? She's overwhelmed. She's irritable. She's tired. She don't let me play my music. Because it's too much noise. Right? The chirp that always comes to me is, what is her problem? I know you had all of that brain surgery and everything. I know we had all this stuff, but seriously, get it together, woman. I'm not kidding you. That is the stuff that chirps at me every day that I go home. What do I do? Do I receive that? Do I listen to it? Or do I recognize that this woman, our family, has had a lot of stuff? This woman has had a lot of stuff and wants to be holy and wants to love our children and wants to get everything done and wants to do this stuff. What do I see? Do I see the right or do I see the wrong? Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says that love is patient, love is kind, and love rejoices in the right. What that means is is God sees who we're called to be, who we desire to be, who we were created to be. He doesn't see all the mess. That's not the first thing he sees. He sees it, but that's not the first thing he sees. We see this in the prodigal son. Here's this kid who wishes his old man dead and wants inheritance that really isn't his. It's the older son's to begin with, which is why the older son's so irritated, right? He takes a chunk of his own inheritance. He goes and squanders it. He leaves wealthy. He would have been dressed amazing. For that time, he probably smelled amazing. Oils and everything else, right? Oiled his beard. He would have been amazing. When he comes back, he's not. He's been literally eating food covered in pig stuff. Think about that for a minute. He has squandered everything and he is living in pig stuff, eating things covered in it. The beard oil's gone. The clothes are gone, the dude stinks, he's disgusting, and he would look nothing like what he left looking like, smelling like anything else. He would not have probably even really resembled the man or the young man who left when he came back. But when he comes back, what John Paul II tells us, and I'm going to hack this up, Father Dives, Misericordier. Whatever. Talk to him if you want to know the actual name of it. After this, it's one of his encyclicals on divine mercy. He says that when the father sees him, he sees who the young man really is. It's kind of like when you start dating somebody. It's not that you don't notice other attractive people. It's just that this one stands out and all the other ones kind of fall to the background right? Hopefully. (laughs) That's how God is with our sin. When he sees us and we come to him, he sees who we are. All the dirt and the muck kind of falls to the background. It's not that it goes away. It's not that he doesn't see it or notice it, but that's not what he focuses on. And when the young man comes up and the father sees him, he runs towards him. In that time, you never would have seen a father move like that for anything short of his house burning down. Definitely not for a child or his wife. They're all little more than property, right? But what he sees is his son who he's been looking for and longing for, and he runs at him and embraces him covered in pig stuff. When my kids come inside after playing, like they did this afternoon, I went home for a little bit because I haven't seen my family in a few weeks because I've been going giving retreats. Went home for a little bit, and they were outside swinging and playing, and they all wanted to give me hugs before I left. I'm like, deesh, you need a bath. <laughs> right? Nothing compared to the father in the story. He embraces him. He loves him. All the kid can say is, man, if I could just be a servant for this guy, it would be better than this. He immediately gives him a robe, a ring, everything that denotes sonship. And he slaughters the fatted calf and invites him in. This is what the father longs to do with each one of us. We have that access to him all the time. And when he sees us, he sees who we long to be and who we were created to be. Which is faithful, pure, love. See, the great gift that the saints have received is they know that. They believe it. They believe that truth and they live from it. And every time they fall short, they go into that box and say they're sorry. They don't plan on living a life of sin continuously forever. They're not locked in the mindset that I just kind of suck and I'm always going to be a mess and I'm always going to screw up and everything else that's not what the gospel says. What they do know is that sometimes they'll move. Sometimes they'll sin without even realizing it. And then when it comes to right mind, when Jesus shows them, they go in there. We can actually freedom means we can move to a place where we do not willfully choose to stray. The saints don't. The way we attain that is by this constant access with the Father, to stay in his presence, to stand. Is your identity that you are a son or a daughter? Is that your fundamental identity? When somebody asks you who you are, what's your answer? Is it I'm a son or daughter of God? Or is it I'm a stay at home mom? Or I'm an attorney? Or I'm a doctor? Or I'm an electrician? Or I'm a carpenter? Because none of those things are really our identity. Our identity is we're sons and daughters. Satan wants to destroy that with every fiber of his being. Because when we hurt, it hurts God's heart. Let's pause and take a second. Is there a situation in your life that pains you? Maybe something that somebody did to you something somebody else did. Feel that hurt for a moment. Feel what that's like. Right in that place, the Father hurts with you. He hurts as he watches his child in pain. Jesus came to be with you in that pain, He's with you in it. You're not alone. While you're in that place, in that memory, ask Jesus to show you. Say, Jesus, where are you in this? Because he entered into the depths of human pain. He's with you in it. Jesus, where are you in this? What do you want to say to Jesus? Share your heart with him. Stay there. Stand there with him. Jesus is in every bit of pain that we experience. The killer in the midst of pain is loneliness. It's not the pain itself, it's the loneliness and the isolation. because it's not good for us to be alone. I would invite you in some of your time left here for some of those things that are still there that maybe either didn't get brought up in your prayer or if you didn't receive prayer or anything else is to bring them forward to Him. Because he's present in the midst of it. Jesus knows what it feels like to be separated from his father. What it feels like. Not that he was, what it feels like. When he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? That had to be the most... Excruciating pain for the Son of God who has been one with his Father from all eternity to not experience the communion that he shared with him. To have the experience of feeling separated. He knows what that's like. This is the answer that God gives us to our loneliness and our pain. It's not that it will go away. It's not that we'll never experience suffering or any of that. Our culture makes us think if we're going to be happy, we're not going to experience pain and suffering. That's a lie. Everybody will get their share. What Jesus offers us is we will never be alone in it. No matter what, whether we feel His presence or not, we have this open access to the Father in which we stand. Even Jesus' cry of, Father, why have you forsaken me? Shows his absolute faith that the Father is present and listening. Otherwise, from the cross, he would have been like, Seriously, God, why would you leave me alone? Really? You abandon me now? After I did all of this for you? Right? Which sounds absolutely ridiculous. This is the prime question. In the place of difficulty and pain that we encounter in our life, can we stay put? Praying in faith for our Father to be with us, to pour his mercy, to pour his grace. That's the key to freedom. Can I stay there? His voice will consistently whisper our identity to us throughout our lives. Can we get quiet enough in our day-to-day life loose ourselves from some of the distractions that so many of us engage in to avoid the silence so that we can hear him whisper his, our identity to us. Can we maybe detach a little bit from social media, detach from the radio, (laughs) probably from our iPod. (laughs) Let's be real. Um, detach from some of these things so that we can hear his whisper? Do you hear that moment when somebody says something to you and it's actually the father communicating who you are? My secretary, Annette, calls me her work son. Right? She's like, I don't know, 69 or something like that, 70. She's old. (laughs) about the age of my own mom. My mom's I think 71, something like that. But she is, she's like a freaking work mom. Like definitely see that. And that's kind of a funny thing that she said earlier, which I've known to be true for some time. But my primary wound comes from my mom who was not a place of safety, a place of rest, a place where I could be received and loved with tenderness and joy and those kind of things. Yet God gives me all these women in my life, her. I spent like the first three years of doing this only giving spiritual direction to women, which is super awkward. I did not intend to ever do that. I was like, yeah, no, I'm working with men. Then all of a sudden they started flooding me. And I'm like, Jesus, no. So much so that Michelle in my office is like, well, maybe you're the apostle to women. I'm like, great. But God had so much grace for me in that. I needed to be received, I needed my gift to be validated. By being received. Most of these women, I'm 42. They were all like mid-50s, somewhere in there. Older than me. Right? Motherly. They had all been moms for God knows how long, 20 years, something like that. They all had big kids. But I was quiet enough to hear the whispers that I'm a son and I'm loved that the gift that I have to give to the world is valuable do we live quiet enough to hear that do we live quiet enough to hear the other opportunities we were doing a training for our unbound team out at the CK sisters they have like a well, they have their mother house, and then they have this other house that they built. I'm not sure exactly what it's for, but we did our retreat there anyway. And there was a man there who was on my team at the time who was about the age that my father was when he passed away. My dad died when I was 20, so I would have been he would have been 58. And we did not have a good relationship. He was a walking ATM machine for me for most of my life. He wasn't really present. He bought us a bunch of stuff. That's how he showed us his love. And I just used him constantly. I never paid my own bills. I just got money from him all the time. He even told me I was selfish and that all I did was use him. And He wasn't being mean. He was being honest with me, right? He knew it. I knew it. We all knew it. Sister took her, well, I don't even know if she's over the resentments yet from that. Anyway, I used him a lot. Two years before he died, he cut me off. He gave me the title to my car, the last box of stuff, and said, I don't want to see you anymore. If you get your life together, then maybe we can talk. But I'm not. No, I'm done. And I used drugs all the time. I was on a lot of different stuff, um, and I was just a mess, and I was destroying myself, and he couldn't watch me do it anymore. It wasn't that he didn't love me or didn't want me or anything else. He didn't know any other way to deal with the pain that I was causing him. And so he clipped me. This was after I had moved out from the devil worshiper dude. And uh, he cut me off. Two years we didn't talk. Well, that's not true. One time I went up to Brian when he was in the hospital with his cancer and he told me to leave. I went up to see him because I had heard he was in the hospital for my sister. Then I got a call on a Thursday. I was had been to jail for a month or so sitting out fines got out went to a friend's place out by malcolm was out there had no car had nothing by this point i had gone to jail for a place to stay i was homeless i had nothing i had no money i had nothing and uh so i went there i got out i went out to my buddy's place i got a call on a thursday night that he was in tabitha he was on hospice and he was probably going to die soon so friday i went to see him And, uh, my sister and I hung out with him Friday. And then Saturday I spent the day alone with him. And at the end of the night, I said, I love you. And he said, I don't believe you. And that was pretty much the last thing we said. Right. And when he said that, you know, I thought I was a piece of junk, like in just for the record, anybody who lives that way, we know we are like, we feel it. That's half the reason we keep doing what we're doing is because we can't handle who we've become and the damage we create and the stuff that we do in people's lives, right? I knew it, but here was the guy, while he wasn't present, he was the one consistent person in my life. And he gave his certified stamp of approval that I was trash. That's what I heard when he said that. And I was a mess. I blew through about 50 grand of the 350,000 he left me and uh, almost died in the process. It took me, that was in 98. It was a couple years ago. It was last year that I fully kind of got out of that and got free of that. But the year prior to that, I had a huge opening, and it was at this training for my Unbound team. And there was this guy there who was about the age that my dad was when he died. And I had a counselor tell me a long time ago, you know, I tried doing the whole go to his grave, apologize, all that kind of stuff. And that never happened. It was just. And so I remember him telling me, he was like, Matt, maybe you had need to have somebody someday sit in his place and make amends to him via this person. Right. First person to this guy pretending it's your old man. Always thought that was weird, but it was always in the back of my mind. Well, this night, this Friday night, the first night of the retreat, we're sitting there and we're watching this video that I really didn't want to be paying attention to anyway, to be honest with you. And I heard the whisper, go talk to him after this is over. Right. I was quiet enough to hear, go talk to him. And so I did. I was like, hey, can we go outside? Like, this is what's going on. He, he knew my history already. I was like, this was the suggestion. Would you be willing to sit in the place? And he's like, yeah, sure, of course. So we go outside, and I make this. First, I start off like third person, and then I correct myself, and I'm like, no, pretend he's my old man, okay. And I felt so unbelievably stupid doing this, right? But I did. I said everything, and he looked at me, and he said, I forgive you. And the minute he said, I forgive you, it was like a shot to my heart. And I just crumbled. I completely crumbled. But he didn't stop by saying, I forgive you. He said a whole litany of things that I don't even remember now. But what he did come over to do was he blessed me as a son. Had I not been quiet enough to hear his whisper, I would have missed that healing experience. Another healing experience I had was at our last, it was a year ago, we had our unbound training for new team members. Mm-hmm. And we had to have a practicum at the end, and I figured we'd just, like, do what the LET, the LET team does and just pray with each other and stuff like that. But during one of the prayer breaks, I was sitting in the chapel on the 23rd, and Jesus was really clear, like, why don't you get prayed with in front of everybody, Matt? I was like, mm-hmm. eh, weird. So I got prayed with in an unbound session in front of everybody, in the front of the room, right? Because I was listening. And what came there was there was that $350,000 I was supposed to get. I got 50. My dad gave the other 300 to my sister. So she got well over half a million dollars. It always perturbed me. It took her about a decade to blow through it all and waste it all. Right, And I always, you know, reading the scriptures, you start to see that the Father's blessing is really important. Every type of blessing, financial blessing, personal blessing, spiritual blessing, all these things, Well, all of this was withheld from me. Right? That man gave me a blessing that day, but this still haunted me. It still agitated me. It still frustrated me. I still couldn't move past it. So I hear this, why don't you go get prayed with? I'm like, okay, awkward. So I go get prayed with and what comes up, but that situation in front of everybody, that situation, and I'm going through the process of repenting of my anger towards my, my sister, my father, forgiving them. And then what came to me right in the middle of that, in a slight break was that while my father and my sister may or may not have meant those things for bad, what God gave me that day was my life. Because had I received that, I would be dead. 100% guaranteed I'd be dead. I would have overdosed and died. 100% guaranteed it would have happened. And he blessed me with my life. That moment that some people may have meant for evil was a huge blessing from God. And when I talk about or think about that moment now, I don't feel any anger. I don't feel any upset. I am happy. I am happy that I never got that money. I am happy that I have a life today and a wife and children and a community If we can be quiet and stay in this place where we're listening to the Father, where we're open to this Father who looks upon us with love, we'll continue to deepen in this freedom. Jesus came to destroy the works of hell. I said that earlier this morning. When the shepherds came and they saw all those angels and Jesus, what he came to do was take this world back. He's the new Adam. The first Adam gave it over to the evil one. Now Jesus has taken it back. It was never the plan of the Father. And he came to destroy these works. He came to destroy every last thing that the devil throws around. Do you ever wonder why In the Sermon on the Mount, it says, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you sinned. Or if you even say raka, whatever that means, to somebody, you're liable to judgment, anger. It's not just murder. What God promised to do was put new hearts in us fundamentally new hearts that don't think the way that we used to think, feel the way we used to feel, react to things the way we used to react. Not only does he want to destroy the works of hell out here, he wants to destroy them in our heart, and that's the primary place. There's a story I heard a long time ago of two bishops. Of course, it's probably fabricated, but the principle is really important. Two bishops standing outside the Hagia Sophia in... Greece and Constantinople and harlot rides by half naked on a horse. One of them's like, Oh my God, I can't look. The other one's like, that's a beautiful woman. What's the difference between the two? One of them's heart's been purified. One of them's heart's been changed. He doesn't look at her lustfully. She can be half naked riding in front of him And his mind does not function the same way anymore. He doesn't look the same way anymore. What he sees is beauty. Not something he can consume and take and use. Have you ever had the experience coming off a retreat or a prayer time or a consolation of some point? I've experienced this a lot in my life. Where somebody who normally irritates the hell out of you. And you encounter them and it's like, eh, Whatever. Whatever let march on your merry way. Like not a bit of frustration, like nothing. That's the place that he wants us to stand. That's the promise. He will destroy all that stuff in us that keeps us moving from there. So we can be free. That's what real freedom is. He'll change our hearts so that for the person who wrongs us, instead of wanting to wrong them back and retaliate and revenge, vengefulness, we hurt for them. This person's really not okay, and we hurt for them. What does he say from the cross? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Why does he do that? Because Jesus is love. And love is always seeking to serve the person before them, never takes account of wrongs done to them, always forgives, and always sees the good and the right in the person before them. This is the heart he wants to give us, and this is the hell he really wants to destroy. Because imagine what the church would look like if every one of us had that heart. where we're seeking out for the good of the person before us, the person next to us in the pew. I mean, I've got little kids that scream in mass, and my wife gets embarrassed regularly. I don't care anymore. She still gets embarrassed. What would happen if somebody actually helped us instead of the old people that are like, <laughs> you know, it happens all the time. <laughs> Like, for real, what would happen? What would happen if a gay person came to church and was welcomed? And what I'm not saying is that it's all okay, do whatever you want, but this person was not looked at as special, different, weird, or any more inordinate than the person who masturbates all day, every day. It's a disordered desire. What would happen if they didn't have to go to a community out there that would totally embrace them and accept them? What would happen if our parishes, if our church looked like the Trinity and it was a communion of persons constantly giving one to the other? The whole world would blow up is what would happen. And that's what he wants to bring about. And freedom is to be in that place where I can be free of you, out of your head, what you think, who cares, and right up there into him in communion with him. That's what freedom is. Jesus wants to transform every one of our hearts and enable us to stay there with him. And we're all in this process. I'm in this process, you're in this process. I'm amazed when I look back a year ago at the things that I'm free of now, that don't bother me, that don't make me mad, that don't make me afraid, any of that. It's the struggle and walk with him in day-to-day life is where he fathers us. It's in the midst of it. If you have that perfectionistic tendency where you want to have it all kind of figured out before you do anything or understand it, or, oh, God, I might make a mistake. Like, throw that out the window. That is Satan. Because even when we make a mistake, I think of my son. He's kind of learning to walk now. He's almost a year old. I think he's a lazy baby, though. He doesn't, he doesn't hang on. We hold him. He just, like, oh, drives me nuts, drives me up the wall. Because he's huge and he's fat, right? My three year old's like, he's bigger than my three year old. But she like clings and holds on, you know? Anyway, my son is trying to walk. He's trying to walk. Do I yell at him when he falls down? How absurd would that be? Paul's really clear a lot of us are drinking milk, we're thumb suckers. God's not going to yell at us for making a mistake. When we're seeking after him, when we're walking towards him, he helps us up. Anybody ever seen the passion? Passion of Christ. You know, that scene where Jesus is a little kidney trips and falls and Mary like panics that always bugged me really bugged me. And the reason it bugged me is because I never received that kind of love. That kind of real attentiveness, and that denotes a real attentiveness to her son. But that's exactly how the Mother of God is with us when we stumble and fall. I would challenge everybody to go watch that movie, that scene in particular, and place yourself in it when you make a mistake, and watch how she reacts. He loves us, he's here, and he wants to change us. He will change us, and that's what freedom is. Freedom is to be this new creation that he called us to be. We do have a part to play in that, though. Paul is really clear. He says, put off the old man and put on the new one. What does that mean when we're standing in that place where the Father looks on us with love And depressing thoughts come, despairing thoughts, hopelessness, anger, frustration, agitation, all these desolating experiences come. We put them off. Put them off before they have a chance to hit us in the heart and get in. Put them off. A really good tactic for that is to pray in faith the truth. Remember, faith releases grace. Right? When I went home, the dishes needed to be done. Not what I wanted to do with my short time at home. But my wife needed to go to confession, send her off to church. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what do I do with my time here? Immediately the thoughts start coming. Seriously? There's still syrup on the waffle plates? Right? Like it all starts to come. Why? Because Satan wants to move me from this place. So what do I do? Father, thank you for giving me an amazing wife who desires you, who thinks her soul is more important than those dishes, and goes off to church, and goes and celebrates her mom's birthday today, and takes our kids up there to see their uncle, who they absolutely adore. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to take care of this beautiful house that you've given me. This blessing. I praise you and thank you. There's not one single bit of spiritual warfare that's better than praise. Because Satan cannot praise God. He can't. Impossible. So my first line of defense to stand in that place is that. And it's all in, what, Philippians 4? If I can find it. I make a lot of really weird noises. Okay, there it is. I think it's Philippians, isn't it? Maybe I'm wrong. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand, have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Praise and rejoice, the place of gratitude. When that stuff comes, meet it with that. If for some reason I don't do that and it hits my affect, and this is the problem, when it gets in there, it creates an issue. And when it hits the affect, that's the problem. The catechism says that the affect or the passions are the bridge between the higher faculties of the soul and the lower faculties of the soul. The higher being the intellect, the will, memory, imagination, those kind of things, the lower faculties being our basic needs in life, right? The hierarchy of needs. When our emotions get kinked, we want to do the right thing, but we don't. I want to seek and do the right thing, but I end up going that direction. And I, for some reason, I feel like I can't really help it. Right? This is why we want to meet that chirping and that stuff that comes, the impressions that they bring, which can be thoughts, feelings, desires, images, memories, all kinds of stuff that seeks to bring us back to that place of darkness, If it does get in, that's where unbound comes into play. That's where it really comes in. Because what we've done when that comes in is we've listened to it and we've engaged it and we've built a sort of communion with it. So every one of us has a place that's comfortable, an old place that's comfortable. For me, I'm more of a melancholic type individual, so give me some 90s sad, depressing music and just all by myself. I'm comfortable there. i lived most of my life there. Right? And they feed me that stuff. The question is, is, do I receive it and respond to it? If I do, when I catch it, when it comes to my attention, I need to pause and repent. I need to forgive myself usually because I have that brand of sickness where I blame everything on me, Everything I get accused for everything. Whenever there's shame, there needs to be self-forgiveness. If you have shame, there's always self-forgiveness. Because shame says there's something bad about us, right? So I repent of whatever I did, however I engaged that and responded to it and lived from it. For me, that's usually withdrawing, getting quiet, and then go listening to some music that just furthers me down the rabbit hole. Right, Renouncing whatever is there, and we can get free of that. We can break that and move on and get back to this place of intimacy. Right, But the first thing is just praising God and keeping it at bay. Try not to move. If you make a mistake, just ask God's forgiveness and move on. Anything that says you are not forgiven is not of God, period. He always looks at us how he created us to be. Washed clean by Jesus. A son, a daughter. Right? We need to recognize that we have authority. As sons and daughters in the Son, we have the same authority He has. He's given it to us. We have authority over the evil one as He comes against us. We have authority over sickness as it comes to us. We need to stand in that authority. Sometimes we abnegate responsibility to God when it's actually our responsibility. Why didn't he save me from that? Well, why didn't I put it off? Why did I believe it and accept it? Right? He is testing us and training us and teaching us how to be mature. Example that comes to mind is when my son was about three or four... He was standing on the arm of the couch, and we had pretty big couches. We still had pretty big couches, like the arms, yay high, something like that. And he's, like, standing there wanting to jump off. And my wife's like, ah! And I'm like, shh, shh, shh let him. am like, Daddy, just jump over there. Don't jump there. Right? I'm not sure if he's going to hurt himself or not, but he needs to learn. Because I'm sick of telling him not to. Right? So he jumps. He was fine. There's other times I've let them do stuff like that and they fall and get hurt. Is it my fault? Or am I teaching him to grow? See, we want our free will until we don't want it. We don't want God to violate us. We want to be free. But then whenever we find ourselves saying, well, why didn't God make prevent that from happening? What we're in effect saying is we want God to violate our free will or their free will or somebody's free will. He trains us with it. God's punishment is not to throw lightning bolts at us. His punishment is to say, okay, go ahead. You want half your inheritance, prodigal son? Go. Take it. Go. In Romans 1, and I would read this three times, he says, and he gave them over to the lusts of the flesh. He gave them over to. Much of his mercy is restraining these things from us. But he's like, okay, go ahead. My old man, two quick stories and I'll be done. I used to love M&Ms. I don't anymore. And the reason is because my dad used to have a little gumball machine on his side table. And he would, these little butter dishes, he would give me like this much in the bottom. Probably the amount of a bag or something. I whined endlessly as a child, by it wasn't enough. So one time he's like, okay. <laughs> Fills it up. I was like, eat it. I get like three quarters of the way through, and he's like, finish it. <laughs> Never asked for that again. You know? <laughs> I was... <laughs> Had another experience little older. And this was actually a severe wound for me for a long time until God showed me what was actually happening. As a child, we did martial arts and stuff. And I used to have like ninja stars as toys, like real ones and swords and stuff like that. And we had these railroad ties in the back. We lived in a duplex and like, you know, how you'd have like a retaining wall, they were railroad ties, and I'd always throw them into there or into our shed, which my high dad rented the house. You don't want to be mad about that. But I always throw them into stuff and play. Well there was two girls who were junior high age who lived next door and then their older brother was high school, 16, 17, something like that. Well these two girls would torment me. And I mean torment me. Well one day I got fed up and I bing, threw a ninja star into her back. Right? which sounds a little worse than what it actually was. I mean, it went in a little bit, but it was hanging there and she's like running away and it's flopping, you know, and falls out. So I'm like all freaked out, you know, and I go on top of the shed and the shed was pretty high and I waited out there for a little bit. And the next thing I know, her brother comes out and he's got a metal pipe and he is like coming after me, like for real but I'm like moving and he's not getting me. He's hitting the thing. He does that for five or 10 minutes and then finally leaves. And I stood up there forever. And I finally, after however long I was like, okay, well I need to get inside. I need to like figure out a way to do this. So I get down, I go inside. The duplex was a split level. So you walk in, there's the landing and go downstairs upstairs. And my dad's chair was right at the top of the stairs. The TV was over there. I walk in the door, he stood up, didn't say a word, which for him I always knew was really bad because he was a yeller and lecturer and all those kind of things. And he walks down the stairs, he opened the door to the garage, turned on the light, walked me out there, turned around, shut the door and locked it. The guy was in there, right? He didn't have a metal pipe. My dad had already talked to him. Cause he went to my dad to tell him what happened and everything else. And that dude scared the living hell out of me. Right? Terrified me. Terrified me. I never talked to his sisters again. I never boop, nothing for a long time. That really bothered me. But now what it is, is it's an absolute memory of the father's love for me. Because what my dad did was give me over to my behavior See, what that girl did was she went and asked her protector for help. She was being upset. She got a star thrown in her back, right, assaulted. She went to her protector and asked for help. What I did when I was in trouble was I tried to manage it and take care of it myself. And God says, Our help is always in the name of the Lord who makes heaven and earth. We're always meant to go to Him for protection. That's why Jesus does not defend himself ever. And what that moment showed me was the love of God coming through my father. Right? I never did that again. Ever. He didn't lecture me. He didn't yell at me. Anything else. He just gave me over to it. And there's a great deal of wisdom in that from God. Because God will not do anything that actually sets him in a place to be accused. The prodigal son comes back. He's not blaming the father. Because the kid knows he wrecked his own life. Right? It's an important thing. God never does something to us. He gives us over to our own behavior. So freedom is staying in this place with God. It's trusting that he's always loving on us, us, looking upon us with love. It's always praising and thanking him, rejoicing in him constantly, asking with much faith for him to pay, take care of our needs. It's asking him for the grace to see the good in the other so that when someone else is making a mistake or harming us, we can hurt for them, not hurt them. That's where real freedom lies because when we stay in that place, we will not have guilt, shame, condemnation. We won't have any of that. We'll be able to have peace that surpasses everything. And then hopefully one day, if something does happen to us, we can say, flip us over. I'm done on that side, right? Something really important is that is the direction we're moving. Our culture is changing. It is really changing. People do not like us if we're faithful. If we actually hold to the truth, if we don't give in and make compromises, they will hate us, and they do. The way to be faithful in the end there is to be faithful in all these little things now. It's a life of faithfulness. It's a life of intimacy with God that we won't allow anything to separate us from. That's how the saints made it through those things.